This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with former Senator Phil Gramm, a former economics professor from Texas A&M University who served as the U.S. Senator from Texas from 1985 to 2002. Roger and Senator Gramm discuss the lessons that President Reagan's economic policies can teach us today, in addition to his new book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. Senator Phil Gramm, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. I'm very glad to be on the show. Well, it's uh, a wonderful honor for us, somebody who was such an influential player during the Reagan years and continues to be such an influential player in terms of our politics and national conversations. You, of course, were a U.S. Senator from Texas from 1985 to 2002. Prior to that, and consequential for our conversations today, you served in the House of Representatives from 1979 to 1983. And as I reference, you are very much active today, regularly uh, contributing to uh, opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal and recently published a book, The Myth of American Inequality. And I would love to engage with you on this book today. Let's start with a, a basic question about your background, which of course was in economics, studied it, taught it. How did that impact and influence your life in public policy and elective office? Well, uh, economics is is a set of tools to look at the world. Um, I've always been interested in how things work. Um, when I took my first economics course, um, I was stunned that people knew those things. And uh, it explained the world that I'd grown up in. Uh, and so I was hooked immediately. And uh, I became an economist. I taught for 12 years. Uh, I became a full professor. I had two little children. Jimmy Carter was president. We were being asked to learn to live on less. That wasn't the America I signed up for. <laughs> and so I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about the energy crisis. And I got 146 first-class letters about the article. Now, I had written two books. I had written a bunch of academic articles that probably nobody ever read except <laughs> the tenure committee. And uh, so I started speaking out on public policy issues. And uh, from there, I decided to run for public office. I didn't know people, and most people knew me didn't like me. Uh, but I was, I was caught up in the cause. And so I was elected in 1978 and, uh, started immediately trying to deal with the inflation and runaway spending. We'd had nine years in a row of 9.2% average inflation. Uh, and it was, the economy was a basket case. And then, uh, on election day in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president. And so from there, I became the author of the Reagan budget in the House. So for uh, that eight years, I, I worked very closely with the president on everything having anything to do with the economy. Well, let's, let's pick up from there. One of the unique facets of that period in time, you said you were one of the author of the Reagan budget in the House of Representatives serving on the budget committee, but you're a Democrat from Texas. Of course, Ronald Reagan's the elected Republican. You had a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, in the summer of talking about, reflecting on Reagan's lessons in economic leadership and your own experience with him. Talk to us about being a Democrat advancing the president's of the other party's budget. Well, you got to understand that uh, this was 1980. Uh, when I ran for office, uh, I had met Republicans, but there were no Republican office holders in my district. Um, my grandmother had viewed Republicans as those guys in blue shirts that burned down her uh, mother's born. 
And uh, I didn't think party mattered. Mm. It didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was what I believed in, which was basically traditional conservative American values. So I ran for office as a conservative. I was elected as a conservative. I got to Washington and I discovered that I was the only person in Washington that party didn't mean anything to. <laughs> and so uh, I authored uh, with uh, David Stockman a bipartisan substitute for President Carter's budget, uh, which was defeated, but it got a good bipartisan vote. And then when Reagan, Reagan became president, um, Stockman became OMB director, our budget became the nucleus of the Reagan budget. And so, you know, I realized that it was a problem and that uh, it was ultimately going to cause a reckoning, but I wasn't going to let partisanship stand between me and what I thought was right for America. And so anyway, I authored the budget. It passed. We changed America. And so we were in a double dip recession and the Democrats won 30 seats, 29 seats in the House and threw me off the budget committee. And there were a lot of people urged me to just change parties, but I'd been elected as a Democrat. And I thought, while everybody in my district knew how conservative I was, I, I thought people might think I was flying false colors if I just changed parties. So I resigned from Congress and ran again as a Republican. Uh, no Republican had ever gotten more than 35% of the mm -hmm. district, but it really wasn't indicative of the district or the country in, in 1983. And so in any case, I was very fortunate. Uh, I had 11 Democrat opponents and I won the race without a runoff. Uh, amazing. And of course the Reagan white house did not want you to resign and run as a Republican. They they wanted you to hold on to that seat because yeah, you're a Democrat, but you're supportive of 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 their president's policies. And that was one of the more heartwarming and 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 humorous uh, piece kind of piece of the story here, where you know the political director Lee Atwater did not want you to do that, but President Reagan ultimately agreed with the principle that drove you to resign. Correct? Yeah. What happened is. I, when I got ready to go home and announce that I was going to resign from Congress, I called Lee Atwater, the president's political director, and told him what I was going to do. And he said he thought it was a bad idea. Republicans had just lost the election in 1982. Uh, and um, so he argued I should just change parties. And I told him, no, this, this is what I want to do. This is the right thing. So he got the president to call me. So the president called me and said, can you explain to me what you're doing? Lee Atwater's about to have a heart attack here. <laughs> and uh, so I explained to him that, you know, this was the right thing to do. And that if I didn't resign and give people a chance say they agreed with what I'd done, uh, then some people might feel betrayed. And so to my amazement, the president who had been pushed to call me to try to talk me out of this said, well, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. It's what you ought to do. And he <laughs> said, you know, people have a way of judging a man and knowing what he's doing, when he's doing right. And so in any case, uh, I resigned and ran again, and I didn't realize until I'd been reelected and came back to Washington that Lee Atwater had gone back in the president's office and told the president I was going to lose and that it was going to be the beginning of the end of the Reagan administration <laughs> and, uh, that, and begged him to call me back. And the president said they, he wouldn't and that uh, he thought I was doing the right thing and that he could live with the result. And so uh, the result was good, which was a very nice thing. 
it was easy to live with in the alternative. But in any case, um, it tells you something. Oh, and he said another thing. He said, Lee, the whole world does not revolve around me. I love that quote. The whole world does not revolve around our administration. Now, how many presidents take the view that the world does not revolve around them and that, you know, not everything everybody does should be to their benefit or for their interest? Not one in recent memory. Remarkable <laughs> man. That's a great story. But let's let's get to the rhyming of what we were working on then versus today. You also had another piece um, in the journal over this summer looking at the lessons from inf great inflation from 1973 to 1981. Of course, this is what you were working on during those years as a partner uh, with the Reagan White House. And you conclude this piece saying that Joe Biden is pursuing policies that are the exact opposite of what Reagan used to lower inflation and get the economy back on track. Uh, that's what you wrote in August. Conduct, comments, act, actions since then have only reinforced that argument. As recently as last week, the president said, we will not do anything uh, to address entitlement spending, which of course is the perennial and most significant driver of our spending in addition to what we spend on servicing our debt. How take us through some of those features of how Reagan and you and others work to defeat inflation and how what we're seeing today in terms of our fiscal and monetary policy is is not not the same. Well, first of all, uh let me I uh, think I made the point earlier but it never hurts to make it again that we were coming off a nine-year period where the inflation rate had averaged 9.2%. Um, the prime interest rate was 21.5%. The inflation rate was 13.5% at that point. And so the first thing we did is we had a dramatic budget that dramatically reduced domestic spending president believed there was an international threat and we increased defense spending. Um, and uh, the first major vote was reforming entitlement programs. And it was a very, very tough vote. Uh, and uh, we were successful in that vote uh, by a very, very close margin. So with that as a basis, then we went on and reduced tax rates and over the eight years of the Reagan administration, um, we reduced the size of the non-defense part of the budget by a percent and a half of gross domestic product. We increased defense by a half a percent. And so the government was smaller compared to the economy the day Ronald Reagan left office than it was the day he entered office. And also it's important to note that the day Reagan became president, we'd had nine years of runaway inflation and bracket creep as people's nominal income rose, but their real income was falling, had moved people in higher and higher tax brackets. So even the Congressional Budget Office at that point was predicting a recession in 1980 because of the massive tax burden. Mm -hmm. uh, and that massive tax burden had raised taxes by about 10% on the American middle class, again, because of bracket credit. And so uh, that's the situation the country faced uh, on that day in January when Ronald Reagan took his hand off the Bible. And um, uh, the important thing is that it was tough for three years, but by the fourth year, uh, the inflation rate was down. The economy was growing by 7.4%. It was morning in America. And for quarter of a century, uh, built on that base, 
We had prosperity and stable prices in America until the financial crisis. Today, way perhaps the, we haven't seen that many years of inflation, but because of the COVID crisis, because of our continued just spending sprees and other geopolitical challenges, we find ourselves in a place where inflation is on the rise. What policies would you employ today, learning from that era, uh, that would mitigate the spending, uh, the, the 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 you know the rise in inflation? I'm assuming it would be cutting in these uh, entitlement programs and and discretionary. Although my my sense is, if you look at the federal budget, we're not going to solve the problem with inflation, and we're not going to solve our spending problems uh, on the backs of a discretionary budget, which is increasingly a smaller and smaller share of our overall spending? Well, um, first of all, we have runaway inflation today uh, for one reason. Now, there have been a lot of other factors that have marginally affected it, but the government increased spending by 50% in one year. We spent as much in three years as we had been spending in two years. And so when government increases spending by 50%, there's only one thing that's going to happen, and yeah. that is prices are going up. And so at the beginning is to try to shear off this additional spending. And that's how we started with the Reagan program. Now, we had another problem. Social Security was going broke. And so we had to come up with a program to eliminate benefits that weren't part of the basic program, but that had been tacked on and had drawn resources out of the program. And so it was a very tough vote, uh, but we were successful and uh, it made a big difference. You know, people tried to compare what the new prime minister in Britain was doing or proposing as compared to Reagan, but her problem was she proposed a tax cut and a massive increase in spending and set out no program whatsoever to rein in current spending, spending. before she increased spending to fund, basically subsidize the purchase of electricity. So, uh, there was no comparison between that and the Reagan program. The Reagan program reduced spending more than any budget in the post-war period. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about Liz Truss, the new now ex-prime uh, minister, and 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 she she was obviously f highly focused on trying to take an element of of Reaganomics in terms of the tax policy. But you're saying there needs to be an element. Of, of reducing spending as well, because you obviously won't see the return on uh, the growth return from uh, tax cuts until, you know, years out. Well, what happened in, in, in this case is when people that were holders of British government debt looked at the impact of her program without any long-term program to rein in spending, you had uh, basically the what used to be called the bond vigilantes who came in, started selling uh, British bonds, and created a, a financial crisis. Uh, whereas with the Reagan program, the first thing we did was set down a program to try to control spending. Now, when the Democrats won the 1982 elections, we lost our conservative majority in the House, and we would have done more spending reduction had we had the votes to do it. But the bottom line is, which many critics of the Reagan program want to forget, is that we actually reduced the size of government relative to the economy over the Reagan years, even though we reduced marginal tax rate. So the idea that government as a percent of GDP was lower at the end of the Reagan administration than, than when it began. 
great to have you here, Senator Graham. Uh, I got one more follow-up in terms of that program uh, we're just talking about in the 1980s in terms of how to reduce government spending and, as a result, reduce inflation and get the economy back on track. And then we'll move to your latest book, The Myth of American Equality. And it has some resonance today, this question, because there's a view out there, which I'm sure was also present when you were working on this 40 years ago, that you can't strengthen national defense and at the same time do what you need to do to rein in spending. In other words, that's a choice. Reagan, of course, I think would have applied and did apply his mantra of it can be done. But you were there in the thick of it in the budget committee kind of managing that tension. It, no doubt was a tension then. And with Republicans coming in, likely to be the majority in the House of Representatives after our midterms here, we're going to have this debate once again. Can you do what's necessary to address the challenges from China and, and Russia and elsewhere, build up our national defense, and at the same time, reduce spending overall and have a program in place uh, that allows for the type of growth that conservative Republicans want to see. Any, any, any reflections on that tension? Yeah, well, look, it's a real tension. People like spending money in government. You know, uh, this idea that your government is going to give you something. Uh, how many politicians, quote, bring home the bacon without pointing out that the bacon came out of your smokehouse to begin with. <laughs> and so it's it's the hard part of conservatism. Cutting taxes is easy. Uh, building up defense is easy. Um, controlling spending is hard. And it means saying no to people. And, you know, humans like to say yes. And so I think... It's an underappreciated part of the program. Now, could we, should we have done more spending control? Government is too big, too powerful, too expensive, uh, pretty much across the board. Um, so you could always do it better. Uh, I used to apply what I call the Dickey flat test. There was a printer in Mahia who worked hard for a living, was open all day Saturday, and whether you saw him in the PTA or the Presbyterian Church, he never got that blue ink off the end of his fingers. And so I used to say, when I were looking at spending money on a program, I have a simple test. I look at the program, I see what it's trying to do, I try to understand who will benefit from it. And then I ask a simple question. Is it worth taking the money away from Dickie Flatt to pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, there were not a lot of programs that will stand up to that. They didn't pass that test. That's the real test. And um, I remember once uh, our... Uh, the majority leader in the House, a Republican, said, well, you know, where would you cut spending? And I said, everywhere. <laughs> uh, let's move now to a uh, book you recently published, The Myth of American Inequality. Fascinating set of points really that begin from your critical analysis of this, what you call the myth, that people believe that inequality has never been greater in this country. And through an analysis of where we get our statistics from and the statistics that the government uses to address this problem, you've kind of uncovered and explained how really the inequality is not what many will tell you. Take us through the the myth and 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 the statistics, uh, particularly how we measure income, uh, that lead you to this conclusion. Well, Roger, first of all, this book was in the making for about a quarter of a century. Hmm. Uh, economists for 
25 or 30 years have found data that they are dealing with to be at variance with what government statistics are showing. Um, economists have studied what people consume, what they own, and then in working backwards and trying to compare that to what government says the income, especially of low-income individuals, was, they have found it difficult to reconcile it. And then you've got irreconcilable factors in government statistics. For example, the poverty rate fell dramatically from 1947 to 1965. And then in 1965, we started the war on poverty, and the poverty rate fluctuated between 14% and 11% for 50 years. During that 50 years, the value of the transfer payments that government made to people that were in the bottom 20% of American earners grew from $9,700 per household to $45,400 per household on average. And so you ask yourself, how is it possible that the federal government could be providing $45,400 worth of goods and services, and yet the poverty rate has not changed in 50 years. And that's adjusted or not adjusted for inflation, that number? That's all adjusted for inflation. It's in real dollar terms. So, and then there was another one, and this is the one that finally induced me to, uh, to write the book. Increasingly, you have had the following absurdity. The Bureau of Labor Statistics provides data every year on how much each quintile of American earners consumes, bottom 20% all the way through the top 20%. The Census Bureau once a year provides what the income of each of these quintiles is. For 10 years, the bottom quintile has spent twice as much as it's earned. <laughs> the second quintile has spent 11% more than it's earned, and the top quintile has spent only 50% of its earnings, but yet there's no evidence that they're saving anything like 50%. Okay, how did all this happen? Well, it all happened because going back to 1947, where the Census Bureau set up its system for estimating household income, it decided to count things that were related to cash payments or cash equivalent payments and decided not to count things that were in-kind payments. So, for example, today, the Census Bureau does not count two-thirds of all transfer payments as income to the people who got the transfer payments. Let me just go over what some of those payments are. They don't count refundable tax credits where you get a check from the Treasury. And they don't count it because they don't count taxes at all. Uh, they don't count food stamps where you get a debit card and you go to the grocery store and you buy groceries. They don't count Medicaid where the government pays for your medical expenses. They don't count housing subsidies where government pays your rent. They don't count over 100 federal, state, and local programs. And so when you add all these programs up and count transfer payments as income, the people that got the payment, and you take taxes away from the people that paid the taxes, then whereas the Census Bureau says the ratio of the top 
20% of earners to the bottom 20% is 16.7 to 1. We show that it's actually 4 to 1. All right. All the data, all the data we're using now is from the government. It's all government data. They collect it. They just don't use it. Senator Graham, uh, we're talking to Senator Graham, author of The Myth of American Inequality. And I, I, let's just drill down on this for a second. Those are just amazing numbers and such disparity, right? Uh, where you could say that, you know, it's it's from 16 to 1 or 4 to 1, right? I mean, it's just so such a huge variance there. And it all is tied to what the Bureau of Labor Statistics chooses to count as income or not. And in kind, if I heard you correctly, things that are in kind, uh, transfer payments, right? They're they're not counted to include some of the biggest buckets of government entitlement spending. Two thirds uh, of all the programs. Two thirds of, of of it all, right? So you have the SNAP program, right? You have Medicaid, and and why <laughs> why is that not counted as 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 income is that consistency well we don't get into trying to impute motive what we're trying to do is get the facts straight now look you can say that the top 20 percent of earners making or having four times as much income as bottom is too much inequality it's debatable but it's a very different debate than 16.7 to one. Also, the poverty rate, when you count all transfer payments as income to the people that receive them, is not 12%, but it's 3%, actually between two and 3%. And the tragedy is, is that these are people that have fallen through the cracks and because of mental illness and drug abuse, are not being reached by the current programs. So we could increase food stamps all we want to increase it. We can uh, increase rental subsidies all we want to increase rental subsidies. And we're not reaching the people that are living on the streets in San Francisco and in Austin, Texas. Uh, and then finally, you've, The Economist magazine says it is universally accepted that income inequality is high and rising. Bernie Sanders says the growth in income inequality is obscene. It is unsustainable. And we show that if you count all transfer payments as income to people that receive it, and you take taxes out of the income of the people that pay it, that income inequality is lower today than it was in 1947. So we're having this debate about dramatically changing the American economy to deal with inequality that is actually slightly lower today than it was 70 years ago. Fascinating, Senator Graham. Just to understand these these numbers, is that the poverty rate, when you take into account the transfer of payments is actually not this 12 to 14%, but between 2 and 3% because government policy is transferring money or in kind uh, to enhance their, their, their way of life and to get them to pull them out of poverty. So they have food, clothing, and shelter. Um, what I've heard you say, we haven't hit on it yet, is that there is this impact on the ability of that group that's in that, you know, that, that are getting these transfer payments that are in that you know, lower 20% from returning to work because the policy has been to give what you said from $9,000 or, or so to today close to dollars $40, $45,000. Talk a little bit about the impact of these policies on the labor market and one more piece to that, Senator Graham, how it impacts those that aren't receiving these transfer payments, often referred to as uh, the working class poor. Yeah, well, look, here's what has happened. In 19, 
67 when the funding for the war on poverty started. 68% of the prime work age persons in the bottom 20% of income owners worked. 68%. As the value of government transfer payments grew from less than $10,000 per household on average to almost $50,000 today after the pandemic, what happened is the percentage of prime work age persons at work fell from 68% to 36%. And I don't think we should be shocked that that is the case. If mm -hmm. you give people what they take a job to get, you can't be shocked when people don't take a job. And it's interesting that during the pandemic, as these benefits exploded to people that had up to $150,000 a year of income. What happened to the labor force participation rate? It fell because, again, you had, you were providing benefits at levels that were as high or higher than the income that people were making. And then when people got on these programs and saw how generous they were on a permanent basis, million and a half people never came back to work. So one of the reasons that we have a labor shortage, in fact, the primary reason, is that we are paying people not to work. And so one point we make in the book, critics say, the book says you ought to cut all these programs. We don't say that. We just simply say that if you're going to provide people with middle income, if you're going to provide subsidies that put them in the American middle class, and you want to encourage people to work, you're going to have to have a mandatory work requirement. And so one of the things we recommend is that we take the Clinton welfare reform that applied to a little sliver of welfare called aid to families with dependent children, a mandatory work requirement, the greatest social success of my political career. Mm. Then we apply that to all means-tested programs, to able-bodied people. So if you're getting this benefit, You've got to work. So, so let's let's unpack that for a second, Senator Graham. You referenced the the welfare reform during the Clinton years. Your key player in that, and saying that uh, should be applied here for you know means tested programs, which would include food stamps, SNAP program, health care, housing benefits, and the like. Um, for those who have who are able to work, that obviously don't have disability. Yeah, and we're able to work. What what would that look like in terms of a reform package, and 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 and, and what would you estimate would be the impact on the labor force, Senator Graham? Well, you'd have a dramatic increase in the number of people work, and if we replicated what we did in aid to families with dependent children. About half the people got off the program, got jobs, and went on to have productive lives. So this is not just about money. It's about people. And uh, we have, you know, if you don't get in the economy, you don't get the benefit of economic growth. You never discover what talents you have. You never develop those talents. And you're constrained by how much government is willing to give people. So when people talk about the fact that the bottom quintile of earners um, uh, have had a smaller percentage, even though a very dramatic uh, upward mobility, but a smaller percentage than the other quintiles that have risen. A big part of that is that about half prime work age persons during that period just quit working. So if you quit working, you simply get what the government gives you. 
and that's obviously dramatically increased income, but nothing compared to what might have happened had they gone to work. Uh, and we can also, as part of these programs, if you've got dependent children uh, with the ability to use the internet now, People can get their, they can get literacy training, they can get a GED, they can start, start technical programs. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do to school up people well, to it, be able to do jobs that pay. Yeah, that, you're anticipating my, my follow-up. Even if you, you know, were to set aside those who physically, mentally aren't able to work, uh, you still have an argument out there that those who are right now getting the help of government for housing, for healthcare, uh, food benefits, that they won't be able to reenter the workforce because they're simply not trained and skilled to do so. And so you simply just be removing a benefit without giving them a, a pathway to the workforce. Do you think government and, 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 and the private sector actually has tools in place where that person who's left the workforce can re-enter? Well, look, have you been into a business lately? Have you gone to a restaurant lately? There's a sign in every window, help wanted. Anybody can walk in there that can has the skill to come to work and pay attention for eight hours a day, uh, can start work at $15, $17, $20 an hour today. Um, and again, they can start accumulating talent and skill. Um, obviously, if we could dramatically improve the quality of primary and secondary education, especially in inner cities, we could go a long way uh, toward helping people get the tools they need. Senator Phil Graham speaking to us about the myth of American inequality. Uh, we're a moment here. We're going to go to our lightning round where we ask our guests to share their favorite well, quotes. Before we do, let me just mention some of the things that are in here. Yeah, go ahead. We, we look at the super rich. Do they pay their share of taxes? How, how does the American tax system compare to the rest of the world? The top 10% of American earners pay a larger share of the income tax burden in America than in any other country on earth, and the bottom 90% pay a smaller share than in any other country on the face of the earth. Um, what about mobility? 93% of the people who grow up in the bottom 20% of income earners in a family uh, that basically is poor end up as adults living in households that have more resources than their parents did. And so, so you're saying 90% of those people who grow up poor, when they're adults, they're, they're, they're better off than what they had. Are they, have they exited poverty? They're 93% are better off than they were. Does better off mean they've exited poverty, I guess, is my question. 62% rise out of the bottom 20% of income earners. Got it. And half the people that don't rise out that are prime work age are people that have dropped out of the labor market. So opportunity is alive and well in America. Now, obviously, if you get a choice, you want to be born beautiful and brilliant and rich. <laughs> but people that aren't any of those things succeed routinely in America, so routinely that it's not, it's not, that we don't even talk about it. So, uh, so this, I mean, the, the myth here is, is, is greater than just an inequality. I mean, this tone, this kind of, you're leaving, your final point here is the notion that America is only the richer getting richer the opportunities in there for everybody else, that the pie is essentially fixed and you're going to get less and less. I mean, you're wholesale rejecting and that opportunity has never been greater. Not only am I rejecting it, American history rejects it. Okay. The, when the rich get richer, everybody else gets richer. 
Bill Gates is a lot richer than I am, okay? Uh, he, but he owns 7% of Microsoft. Who owns the other 93%? Mostly pension funds, your pension, my pension. So he made all of us richer. Warren Buffett is the greatest investor in history, and he's made a lot of money. But he made everybody else more money by making money himself. So I don't understand resenting Warren Buffett. But I'll follow up that one just to play the 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 kind of helpful uh, do. critic like here, and then and then we'll we'll, we'll conclude. But. Even a guy like Warren Buffett, who clearly likes to make money, he's done a great job throughout his career, and people made a lot of money listening to you know, his advice and following his bets. He thinks, at least from a tax policy standpoint, it's unfair. Maybe we wouldn't use the language of, uh, at a, of inequality, but he'd say it's unfair that you know, he's got this low capital gains, which, of course, accounts for his income, and then his assistant, who works, you know, 40 plus hours a week, and her income is through her salary, not through uh, the stock market and equities, uh, you know, pays as a percentage basis a lot more taxes. So take on, now that you uh, mentioned Buffett, take up the Buffett critique. Well, first of all, I don't believe it. But in any case, <laughs> the tax rate rises steadily. Uh, as your income goes up to the top 0.01%. Progressive tax rate. Tax rate, this is counting income taxes, Medicare taxes, um, uh, and Social Security taxes, okay? It peaks out at about 40.6% and stays there and then dips for 400 households that basically earn almost all of their income and capital gains and give vast amounts of money away. I don't know what uh, uh, Warren Buffett gives away, and I don't know how that affects his taxes, but I know that he pays a lot of taxes. And look, he does, the, the, the interesting thing about him is that he's got a Scrooge-like quality in that he just invests. And so when he dies and government takes 40% of what he's got and spends it, my guess is we'll be worse off with the government spending it than we are with Warren Buffett creating jobs and growth and opportunity by investing it. If it's not doing him any good, who? what good is it doing? It's doing you good, doing me good, doing America good. It builds on the Bill Gates point you made before. Yeah, I don't resent the guy. I'm grateful for him. I wish we had more people like him. A couple of more points. If you took every penny of income of these super mega rich people, you couldn't fund government for a week. Right. Okay, it's a myth. If you took all the income of the top 1%, the top one out of every 100 taxpayers, you couldn't fund government for two months. The government taxes middle and upper middle income Americans for the same reason Willie Sutton robbed banks. That's where the money is. <laughs> so this idea that socialists are uh, trying to get people to believe that somehow if we take Warren Buffett's money, we can just have everything. It is a complete myth. Uh, middle and upper middle income Americans fund the government because there's so many of us. Well, Senator Graham, we're coming to the end of our time here. Great chatting with you on the myth of American inequality. Before we let you go, we need to hear Something for our lightning round, a reference before Reagan quote, speech or book or anything you heard the president say that you want to share with our listeners and viewers. Well, I would say a lot, and so I'll just be quick. First of all, Reagan used to love to say 
that given how much better we have made the country with what we've done, imagine what America could be if we really had good government. <laughs> I never failed to get a smile when I used to go and I'd tell the president before our meeting started what had happened to the number of disabled Americans drawing disability from the month before. Because guess what? When the economy took off, the number of people on disability fell through the floor. <laughs> right. Because disability is a relative term. Okay, you can be crippled and be and watch TV screens as a night watchman and uh, call the police if you see something wrong. Almost everybody has some productive ability. And if you get the economy really going, you'll get people who you'll find employers that are willing to work out things so that more people can use their God given ability. Uh, what what was my favorite part of Reagan's speech? Well, I love the inaugural address when he said, how can we love our country and not love our countrymen? And when they fall, help them up, but help them help themselves so that they can be our equal, not just in theory, but in fact. And that's the essence of the Reagan program. We're not trying to give people money so they're not poor. We're trying to have an economy with incentives so people cannot be poor because they're productive. And real happiness comes from the fulfillment of doing something that you know belongs just to you and to the people that love you. Reagan understood that. I understand it. And it's a very important point to me. Well, we thank you for sharing that with us. Productivity, opportunity, pursue the American dream. Stuff we love discussing here. Congratulations on your book, The Myth of American Equality. we got to continue the conversation with you here on Reaganism. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.